Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by journalist and author David Friedlander, whose most recent book, The AOC Generation, How Millennials Are Seizing Power and Rewriting the Rules of American Politics, has just come out in paperback. I'm grateful to speak to him about the book and its key insights. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Your book outlines the rise of a new progressive movement of millennials in American political life. What issues or factors have led to its emergence? Well, you know, I think the biggest one um, was the election of Donald Trump, um, which, you know, was just such a shock to the system and has been such an ongoing uh, shock to the system here in the States. Um, And, you know, it's just because like anything else, it's like, you know, if, if you woke up one morning and the sky were orange, you sort of eventually kind of get used to it which is not saying anything about Donald Trump, but, um, you know, it's, it's just worth remembering like that there's this guy who was like a reality TV show star and, you know, quote unquote businessman and real estate developer who had this long history of, you know, at no experience like anyone else who'd ever held that office before. Um, and so I think that really like spurred a lot of people to kind of recognize that something was really fundamentally broken about, um, the country in a way, um, and its political system. And, you know, that had, and sort of, so that, whatever you want to call it, fear, concern, was kind of glomming on to these other things that had been like kind of bubbling up a little bit um, beneath the surface prior to his election, you know, including the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, in, in 2015 and 2016, which really galvanized young people, you know, and then other sort of similar movements or, you know, Occupy Wall Street a few years before that, um, various, you know, climate uh, related things, school debt um, and stuff like that. At The Hub, David, we think and write a lot of the kind of intellectual and political paradigm that underpins contemporary politics. Preparing for our interview, one thing I, I wondered is the extent to which uh, the rise of this movement that you outline in the book reflects the end of an intellectual and political paradigm that had been with us since the end of the Cold War. If that's right, to what extent is this a transitory period of political weirdness before we get to something resembling a new political center? In other words, are these political developments temporary or more durable in your view? I mean... (laughs) That, that, that's that's a great question. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure we really could have the answer for it yet. I mean, including 
you know, like how liberal, lefty, progressive this rising generation will like turn out to be. I mean, I, I suspect for many reasons they they will remain, um, you know, that way, not least of having to do with the fact that um, there's just so many of the kind of like footholds and gateways to a kind of more like middle class, um, you know, established life are unavailable to them, including home ownership, and, and, you know, including not being saddled with college debt, um, including like a, a, a sort of thriving, you know, job market for people with kind of elite college degrees, frankly. And I, I, I don't think all that is available for them. But, you know, I mean, they're sort of like, <laughs> it feels sometimes like there's a more pressing, almost like political force in the country, which is the sort of Trumpist, far-right, nationalistic, populist force. And so how how those two things, you know, end up kind of grappling with one another, I think, um, I think, I think we're, not, we're not really quite sure about, you know, we, we might get into it, but, you know, the, the sort of young um, millennial progressives that I read about, you know, it's very much a, um, a phenomenon of sort of coastal big cities, for right now. And, you know, how that kind of ends up, and, and, you know, here in the States, right, like the geography ends up mattering as much as the voters. And so how those two things collide, I think, I think we're just not quite sure about. David, I'll come back um, to the question of the dialogue between left and right later. But let's take up the book's title, which specifically cites Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as the unofficial leader of this movement. How much is she an avatar for the movement versus an intellectual and political force driving it? Is she, in other words, a perceptive politician or an ideological leader? I think she's she's very much both. You know, um, I mean, I, I think that her her politics are certainly like deeply felt. I mean, I don't think that she is somehow just like jumping to the front of the parade. I mean, I think that like a lot of young people of her generation, I mean, you, you're kind of a socialist or or democratic socialist, you know, before you even know it. I mean, at least from my kind of, you know, reporting on her before she would sort of, you know, she joins groups like Democratic Socialists of America, but just kind of because they're, they're sort of the hip thing to join at the moment. But I think that she was like very much sort of feeling that as someone who graduated from an elite college, really struggled to find a place in the world, you know, couldn't get a foothold hold here or there. And, and she's very, I mean, you know, she's a real political phenomenon. And, you know, she's very, it's very a non top down kind of thing. If you, if you sort of follow her closely, I mean, she's really like engaged in a dialogue with, you know, for what black of a word, we could call her followers, frankly. But she also really like commands them, I think, when she wants to. You know, for example, here in, in New York City, uh, we had a mayoral race in last year. And once she endorsed a candidate, you know, that candidate sort of zoomed up in the polls. I mean, it was like an old school kind of like precinct ward, you know, situation where the leader says, this is who, you, this is who you know, you, you're for if you're a, a young progressive and people just moved en masse to that candidate. So I think it's a little bit of both. What, in your view, David, makes her such a special political talent? Why is she a phenomenon? So, I mean, she's incredibly fluid, you know, in both kind of media, new and old, I think, is part of what it is. I mean, if you sort of 
follow her Instagram stories or follow her on Twitter or wherever, she clearly kind of has mastered that medium uh, in a way that I, certainly no other politician quite has. But she's also, you know, she's so self-possessed and confident and uh, for lack of a better word, I mean, she's just she's just so well spoken, and she's such an such, such a great orator that you know I think that that is part of the of the phenomenon, and I also think that she is sort of fluent in the language of pop culture and and in the sort of you know you know stations of the cross of, of popular culture in a way that few other politicians are. You know, there was an incident that happened. Gosh, I forget, I forget now. If, I think it was two summers ago where, you know, a Republican uh, politician called her a sort of misogynistic epithet on the floor of the House, if you recall. And and she, you know, took that and like made a really big deal about it. She gave this like very impassioned, fiery speech on the floor of the House, got all of her colleagues there. And it's it's things like that. Like she is the wrong person to mess with if you want to mess with someone. Um, because in those kinds of scenarios, she's just so much sort of better at her opponents than in, in the kind of game of politics. You mentioned her relationship with her Democratic colleagues. Let me ask a question about that. Her hyper-progressive politics are hugely popular with the Democratic Party's energized, most energized base. But some members of the Democratic Congressional Caucus have argued that it harms the party in swing districts. What do you think about this perceived tension between AOC and the Democratic establishment? Are there limits to the broad appeal of the new left? Or do you think that U.S. political culture is changing due to demographics and other factors such that there's a mainstream future for someone like Ocasio-Cortez? When I wrote the book, I would have thought there was more of a mainstream future for her than I think it appears as if there is now. Who knows? You know, things certainly change um, pretty quickly. I think a lot of her politics are like kind of unpopular in the sort of broader country, frankly. I mean, a lot of them are popular and a lot of them aren't. And, you know, like Bernie Sanders, you know, he probably got what, like a third of the Democratic primary um, vote when he ran, you know, half of it roughly when he ran the year before, which is, you know, that's like pretty close to being the Democratic nominee. And then, and then you have you know, Democrats kind of rallied to the cause. But no, I think that those, a lot of her views, you know, aren't that frankly popular. And she has, you know, interestingly, has shown no sign of moderating at all. I mean, she's not trying to be popular. She doesn't seem to be trying to run for president. She doesn't seem to be trying to kind of be a national leader of of the Democratic Party. Um, But what I think is, it was interesting about your question. You know, she she defeated a, 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 like, 20-year incumbent old white guy to, to win her, her seat. And other folks like her who also beat similar incumbents and similar candidates that year, you know, they do put a pressure on the Democratic coalition that was just not there before. And yeah, I, I bet that um, the Democratic leaders in the House, Nancy Pelosi and others, like don't like her because it's tough. You know, it, when you have a very liberal person representing a very liberal district and sort of not thinking about, you know, I don't think they really think about, is this going to like keep Democrats in the majority if I say this thing? It's more like, is it going to play well with my base and my district? And I think it, you know, it ends up being, it ends up being a real problem. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. 
Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. It's such an important point, David. Let me take you up on that issue more broadly. You know, it seems to me there, there are different ways in which to measure success. One, of course, would be to rise to the top of the National Party. Another is to influence the ideas and the policy agenda that animates the, the party. And it seems to me where I always see and others are having their greatest success is not necessarily rising to the top of the party ticket, but in changing the center of gravity in democratic politics. Do you want to just elaborate a bit on the extent to which we've seen a shift to the left in, in democratic politics over the past decade or so, and the extent to which this progressive millennial a movement is responsible? Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And, um, you know, when I, as a reporter, when I sort of interview, you know, leftist activists and, and others, I, I try to like get at this point a lot, which is that like maybe the point of left politics is actually not to gain power, but to kind of move the center of gravity of debate. And on that, they've been really successful. And then like the way it seems like the sort of dynamic works, right, is that you you move the center of gravity of debate towards you, and then you kind of push a little further. So you're, you, you know, so you never quite get to hold, hold the flagpole kind of thing, but it's fine because you're like winning on the battle of ideas. And I, that seems really certainly to be true. I, um, I think, you know, I mentioned in the book, I mean, when you compare the, the like pl- platform of Ralph Nader's 2000 political campaign, Ralph Nader, who ran as a green party candidate and got 2% of the vote, like it is, more conservative than Joe Biden's platform in 2020. And, you know, I think that's a real testament to the way in which Ocasio-Cortez and, and others have kind of like stretched the boundaries of debate in their party. One of the appeals of AOC, uh, David, is that she communicates a traditional class-based understanding of politics, which has something of a broad resonance. Um, but there are others on the new left that are more focused on issues of culture and identity that David Shore has argued is, is less popular with the American mainstream. Is there a risk that the emphasis on culture and identity may actually stand in the way of the popularity of the new left's economic program? And if so, how do AOC and others in this movement sort of think about the, the, the trade-offs um, between these different parts of their uh, worldview? Yeah, I mean, David Shore is exactly right about that. Um, and, you know, I always think of it as a sort of like, it's like the 2016 version of, of, of Bernie Sanders versus the 2020 version of Bernie Sanders. And, and the 2016 version was a very much a kind of like class-based and, and also like really focused on working class voters. And the 2020 version was like much more these kind of cultural, um, you know, salient, high profile issues and, and and he did worse. I mean, right. Like, so, you, you know, you don't hear um, someone like Ocasio-Cortez, I think, and, 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 and others like talk about that culture war stuff that often. Right. Um, you know, when asked, when presented, I mean, she'll sort of, I think, you know, sign along with the suite of, of issues that people who want to talk about those things would agree with, but it doesn't really feel like it's the sort of, um, 
focus of her of, of, of her politics. You know, I think it's also, though, just worth noting that, like, as a child of Puerto Rican parents, she has, like, there's less of a need for her to talk about that kind of thing in a funny way than there is for, like, a white guy like me or, you know, a, a white woman to talk about them, I think. I think there's a sort of people feel like she has, like, a, you know, more leeway uh, and doesn't need to be confronted with it, right? It's like, you know, I mean, like the no president talked about race less than Barack Obama, right? Because he didn't have to. Um, and so I wonder if it's like sort of similar as like a young uh, Puerto Rican that she doesn't get sort of quite caught up in these issues in quite the same way. You mentioned earlier, David, um, uh, the potential for a dialogue across the ideological spectrum. What do you think about accompanying intellectual and political ferment among younger American conservatives? There seems to be something of an inverse trend towards heterodox and weird political ideas on the right as well. Maybe just have you elaborate. Are, are, are these ideological movements indeed in dialogue or are they on separate tracks? You know, I think they are probably in dialogue. I mean, I think there's a lot of like dissatisfaction with the uh, least rhetorical dissatisfaction with like the prevailing liberal orthodoxy. Um, and it tends to kind of that dissatisfaction tends to kind of dominate the like talk space of little magazines and podcasts and, and Twitter and, and places like that. I mean, I don't foresee like, you know, when the chips are down that there'll be a lot of like cross coalitional work there. I mean, I think that the, the it's like fun to have a debate, but I think that these like two camps are just probably too far divided for any kind of common purpose. Now, one of the striking things about American politics is that while we're having this conversation about the power and influence of this um, emergent progressive millennial movement, political leadership in the U.S. is still dominated by President Biden, who's 79, Donald Trump, who's 75, Nancy Pelosi, who's 82, and Mitch McConnell, who's 80. What what do you attribute? Um, <laughs> what do you attribute this kind of gerontocracy in uh, American politics? Why is the American political class so old? That is a great question. And I don't know if I have a real answer to it other than, you know, it's hard to def to like push someone off the stage who has a lot of political power and who sort of wants to be there, right? I mean, if Nancy Pelosi wants to lead the House Democratic Caucus, she's all these built-in advantages to kind of just keep doing it regardless of whether or not she actually can keep doing it, you know? Um, and so, it, I mean, I want to say it's a sort of like unique moment, but it's really not a unique moment. I mean, I feel like it's been that way for, for a really long time. You know, and it's not just, I mean, we haven't had a Gen X president, for example, or like leader of any, any of these bodies. I mean, it's really, it's really remarkable. And I think that, I don't know, I think just politics kind of went berserk somewhere around 2014 and we just haven't sort of sorted it out. I mean, I tried to look this up one time and I don't, I just remember like, it's very unusual to have a handoff of a politician who is you know, young, older, like the, the leaving president is younger than the person, the next one, which is, which is what happened when Obama handed it off to Trump, you know, cause you've been there for eight years and, 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 you know, whatever else. I, I, I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for it. Um, other than, and you know, yeah, I just don't. <laughs> if I can come back to, um, 
your first answer, where you talked about the extent to which the Trump election occurred at a time when there were already feelings amongst young people that middle class progress in the United States, as defined by home ownership, job security, um, and so on, was at risk. You know, to to what extent do those sentiments and feelings continue to drive um, this progressive millennial movement? And and if so, you know, how can the American political class start to kind of rebuild and restart the the kind of promise of middle class progress in the in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that was like the debate we were all having in. Um you know, at the end of 2020, right? I mean, that was what COVID was going to like, re- we were going to kind of recognize that we've accrued all the, the, you know, this sort of whatever we inherited this situation that no nobody was really quite comfortable with. And, you know, we, I don't know, because the political system does not so responsive necessarily to the, to the needs and desires of, of the voters that we, we're just, we're not making progress on that. You know, I mean, the Biden build back better, you know, program is dead, probably not going to be revived. And so it doesn't, it doesn't seem like any of that is improving. In fact, it seems like it's moving in the opposite way. I mean, I do think that, you know, the sort of switch and remote work may have, may like ease some of the pressures there and, and, and the sort of, you know, zoomification of, 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 of everything might open things up a bit, but, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't appear as if like college is getting cheaper, Homeowning certainly not getting cheaper. Are there more good jobs? I don't think so. You know, I'm not really sure. We've spent most of the conversation talking about how these different ideas manifest themselves in issues in and around domestic policy. But this conversation is occurring against the backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and kind of renewed discussion and debate about American foreign policy. To what extent, David, is this movement animated about? American foreign policy issues, and how would you describe its kind of approach or, or position vis-a-vis American foreign policy? I think that um, the movement is very suspicious of American foreign policy, and it does not view America as like a force for good in the world, and that that is um, kind of one of the defining features of it, that it believes that like America is often a bad actor um, and that, frankly, you know, the Democratic Party is often also a bad actor, um, you know, it, it, and so but I so I don't I don't think there'll be I'll, I don't think there's a lot of patience or, or understanding for the sort of foreign policy consensus such such as it exists. And, you know, I, you know, you're, I mean, you're already, I think, in a funny way, seeing some of that actually unravel right with um you know, with the pullout of Afghanistan, with the um, lack of American troops in Ukraine, which which some some called for, that I just think it's that that, that feels like a little bit more sort of successful in some ways um, as a project. Two final questions, David. The first is just on that point. You know, it seems to me at different times in the 20th century, when progressives have had the most kind of political fecundity. It's when they've wrapped their program and agenda in a kind of message of of patriotism. Uh, I think of FDR's New Deal, for instance, or even um, Lyndon Johnson's The Great Society. So, to what extent is that sort of suspicion 
about America's role in the world, a kind of obstacle or barrier to building support for their ideas and agenda? I think it's a, a huge and real one. I mean, I, I, that kind of like view, I don't think is a really popular one. You know, I think Americans like want to sort of rally around this idea of the country, right? Um, as the sort of city on the hill kind of thing. Um, and that's like the glue that, that holds, holds it together. Um, yeah, I don't think that there is a lot of appetite for sort of like, you know, addressing America's wrongs in the world, um, for sure. And maybe I think we'd be remiss if we didn't wrap up with a question about race, uh, which, of course, has been the subject of so much attention and focus in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's tragic killing. Maybe just a, a perspective from you, David, on the way that uh, race is animating this movement and, and what you think about you know, the extent to which it may catalyze um, change in uh, American political life when it comes to issues of race. I mean, I think that it is, you cannot overstate how diverse this generation we're talking about is. And that is a real sea change. And when you think about the sort of, you know, that it's not just AOC, but, you know, Anna Presley, uh, Rashid Tlaib, Ilan Omar, Jamal Bowman, like, there's not, you know, white face among them. And I, and, and that seems like a real portent of the, the, the future of of politics to come in a way, and you know it's 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 right there front and center. You know, obviously, look, we'll see. I mean, you know, Donald Trump famously kind of did a little bit better with voters of color in, in twenty twenty, but you know, how much of that is a kind of unique to Donald Trump and his sort of showmanship versus um, you know an ongoing trend? I think we'll have to see. Well, for those who are trying to understand the intellectual and political backdrop against those trends uh, would be wise to read The AOC Generation, How Millennials Are Seizing Power and Rewriting the Rules of American Politics. David Friedlander, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.